All right, well, we're going to continue on in Mark chapter 12 this morning, and if you'll turn to there, we're going to read uh, the passage that we <clears throat> left off. We started a couple weeks ago, but didn't quite finish, and uh, then we'll move on to the next section as well, and go from there. So verses 18 through 27 is what I want to read first, Mark 12, 18 through 27. And it says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died and left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Pretty strong statement ending with, isn't it? But again, just to refresh our minds of who these Sadducees were, you know, these guys came from the families of the highest standing. And Coming from just even if you weren't a Sadducee and you were coming from a family like that and you're not a Christian, what is, or even, I mean, I guess you don't have to not be a Christian to get where I'm trying to get, but what what is true sometimes of people of high status like that? They're, they're, They're wealthy, they're worldly, you know, what what else is true about them? You've met them. Okay, that's right. Yeah, you know, I'm better, right? I mean, haven't you all experienced I mean, to me, I probably recognized that more in my teenage years of, uh, you know, that if somebody's got a better car than you, you know, I was just glad to have a car, you know, much less if it cranked and rolled out the drive. And I was blessed. I had a really nice car. But, you know, um, I, you know, I honestly felt bad for my kids, perhaps, you know, that, gosh, I can't buy them the... Matter of fact, the first car I bought my son, I bought from Tara, Shane's wife. It was an old Volkswagen, and the back floorboard was rotted out. You know, you could see the road. <clears throat> but you know what? He loved that thing, cause, you know, because he could get away, right? Um, for those of you with young kids, that's when it all goes bad. So just a plug. <laughs> Not to discourage you, but uh, anyway... Yeah, they, you know, the self-righteousness, and the Sadducees sure seem to have displayed that, right? Kind of, you know, go around with their, we would call, say their noses up in the air, right? They're really ill-mannered, full of themselves, and yet, <clears throat> you know, they were kind of in the, in, the, in the name of religion, right? So add that to it, and they represented the Roman government as who they paid allegiance to. So they were kind of, I guess you could say, haughty-taughty people, and Nobody liked them very much because of that, and, um, but they, they didn't seem to let that bother them. The historian Josephus says that uh, they did not believe that there was any life after death, 
And therefore, there was no judgment, no rewards, no penalties. And of course, to them, as the scripture itself testifies there in verse 18, that they didn't believe in a resurrection. So if that's the case, then your mantra can be what? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Matter of fact, I was reminded of how that is so prevalent in our society today. I was reminded of that Friday night. Um, we went to a uh, elementary school, Mountain Road Elementary School talent show. There's not any Mountain Road teachers in here, is there? But and uh, these kids, I'm telling you, the music. I mean, I like good music. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a you got to listen to Christian music only guy. That I'm not there. But these these children were singing songs that they actually had no business listening to, much less singing, you know. And and that came out. One of them, of course, did a came out in all purple and did a Prince tribute. But um, somehow I was spared to that guy. I don't know where I was when that all came out. I think my daughter she she was a Prince fan. I guess still is. But um, my age had much better musicians than Prince. But uh, but you know, I mean, I was just this one little girl was singing one of those songs, and that's what was prevalent in it. Do what you're going to do now, because you're going to be dead later, and then there's nothing. And uh, I was leaning over to Kit. Was it was one of those things where she was squeezing me, you know, because there were people all around us, and I said, "That's a godless song." And but anyway, it reminds us of. Uh, it reminded me again, I guess, of how dark our society really is you know and 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 but we you know then again i got to guard my heart to not be a self-righteous christian right i need to look at them and be sad and and then i was and this is a boast on my granddaughter that was in the talent show it's on facebook if you want to see she sang a christian song her and her little buddies the only light that was in it she sang she had two girls dancing with her and and they did um they did a christian song and it was awesome you know (laughs) Um, and I just thought, well, I'm so glad there was the light. You know, there was two hours of darkness and three minutes of light, but it was there. So, you know, the fact that these guys don't believe in the resurrection <clears throat> was kind of ironic to me that then they pose a question about resurrection, you know, that I would think I could come up with a better agenda than to go pose a question about something I don't believe in anyway. But as I said, they were in cooperation with Rome. And that, again, added to not only were they haughty, taughty, self-righteous, and people didn't like them because of that, but the fact that they were in cahoots with the Roman government made people like them even less. And they're the ones that ran the profitable businesses in the temple. So, you know, they're kind of ticked off at Jesus as well because of him disrupting their enterprise there. And interestingly... To keep the religious tenet of their uh, self-righteousness, I guess you could say, going, they did believe in the Mosaic Law, the first five books, the Pentateuch. But they, they, if you, that, that was superior. If you brought to them something, and I think this is important to, to, to keep in mind as we look at Jesus' answer to them, because uh, he brilliantly uses that. You know, they think, well, we got him. You know, it's not going to be in our part. We believe we'll trick him. So anything other than the first five books, they they wouldn't go with. And if they even considered it, 
they would filter it through the Mosaic law, and if it didn't line up, then, you know, so their agenda, of course, was to discredit Jesus by asking him a question that they felt like there's no way in the world he could answer. You know, it was a trick question concerning marriage, according to the uh, the, the law uh, given to Levi, spelled out in Deuteronomy 25. I'll read that real quick. 25, 5, and 6 says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the purpose was to keep the family from dying out. You know, that was the crafty way of, you know, how is your family going to continue if you're the only one, right? I mean, does anybody got that in their family here? You know, if you don't have a... I have a son, but he didn't have a son. He had all girls. Now, they adopted a boy, so um, he's from Uganda. That's going to be interesting 100 years from now. But... Um, you know, when they do a family tree and they find, we were white, <laughs> but <laughs> how do we get dark? How do we get black? But, you know, I mean, but I mean, that's a way that I've, I, that's always kind of bothered me, you know, that my family is going to cease at the death of my son, but now it's not, right? And so that's cool. The Browns will go on. So, yeah, so... The purpose was to keep the family from from dying out. So these guys were confident that his ability to answer their question, um, yet they were absurd when when they did this because of, you know, just even on the scriptures in the Pentateuch would blow this up. And but they thought, you know, if we can discredit him, then what? Everybody will lose interest. They won't see him as the Messiah. And we can, again, turn this silliness of a Messiah away. So the fact that they, that Jesus tells them they're wrong, and we looked at the, this a little bit the last time we were in this text, um, th- that came from two places, that they were ignorant of God's word and they were ignorant of the power of God. They failed to understand that the scriptures that they used actually taught the resurrection. So, so it follows logically that they... Um, they also failed to comprehend the resurrection because of that. So the trouble was with them, with themselves, they were, they were deceiving themselves and they had come to a false deduction from the text in Deuteronomy 25. And as we said, um, months ago that, uh, a, a, a quite common answer to a to somebody's question by a rabbi was to answer it with a question. Uh, if you remember when we talked about that. But, so Jesus skillfully puts his answer in the form of a question, which implies the affirmative. And um, I thought about that for a second, and, and I had this happen to me one time, and it kind of tricked me. In, in Spanish, they do that a lot. Have you noticed that? Um, I was teaching in Peru one time, and the person translating, I, I said something like, um, you know, the, I don't remember what the what it was, but something that I would have wanted them to give an affirmative answer, like, um, you know, the sky is blue, right? And the translator said, the sky is blue. No, 
And I said, no, not no. So that's that same thing with, that's how language, Dan, you speak some Spanish, isn't that right? Don't they do that? And you would say, no. But no, you get the point? So that's kind of what was going on here. Of, of This was a common thing that rabbis would do. They would answer an affirmative in, by, but by implication, a negative with an implication of an affirmative. So the question invited them to examine themselves to discover the truth of the question. Uh, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? So the, the charge, um, this is not a charge, this is really interesting, this is not a charge of their ignorance concerning the contents of the scriptures. They knew the contents of the scriptures, but rather it was a failure to understand the true meaning. And we can fall into that pretty easily as well, can't we? How, how do we fall into that? How do we fall into that trap of we know the contents, we know what that says, but but we don't really understand the meaning of it. How do we get there? How did these guys get there? What do you think? Don't practice it? Don't practice it? Okay. What else? You know? Legalism? Yeah. So what is legalism? You ever think about that? I asked that question to a guy that was discipling me when I first became a Christian because I kept hearing it. And these guys, I think, certainly would have been in that boat. What, what, is, what would be your definition of legalism? Like looking to, the, looking to acts for, for righteousness as opposed to God's grace. Okay. Do this, do that. Okay. Setting a certain, uh, abiding by a certain set of rules and not straying from them. I think we come from Illinois, as you all know, and we have a lot of apostolic believers there, very staunch on, on going by their rules. And if you have a list of rules and you do not go one way, it's mm -hmm. Okay, and what would be some of those? You know. Can't wear pants, church. That's the one I was thinking of. For ladies, not for men. Yeah, today, you know, these are changing. We don't know what we are. That's the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> dancing, dancing would be one, right? Things like that. You know what the guy that, that I asked the question, you know what his answer to me was? Legalism is adding to God's word. And I like that. And he said, here's the first example. And he took me back to Genesis when Satan added a rule that God never said, right? Now, that's always stuck with me. So, yeah, so, you know, these guys understood the contents of the Scripture, but they were ignorant of the Scriptures themselves, what they were teaching, because they really hadn't studied them out, right? So could you take just the Pentateuch and use the Pentateuch to make sense of the Pentateuch? Or do you got to have the rest of it? What do you think? I would say, yeah, right? I mean, there's enough there for Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? And they, they weren't doing that. So the bottom line with them is if they hadn't understood the true nature of the miracle working that God revealed in the Pentateuch itself, they would not have doubted his power to raise the dead. So Jesus, um, in his answer, elaborated both points, and he says in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
he, he gives them an explanation of their, of their wrong thinking. He's um, giving them a revelation of the future life of which they were totally ignorant because they didn't believe in it, so they were totally ignorant of it. In the resurrection life, there is no marriage. These guys were thinking of the resurrection life only in terms of equating it to exactly what it is here on earth now. Um, I mean, I love everything about my life now. Don't y'all? I mean, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy um, this earth. I enjoy my job. I enjoy my family, my wife. And I, I like, the only thing I don't enjoy is the traffic in Atlanta. But other than that, but you know, if, if this is what that's going to be like, I might be more inclined to think like these guys, right? Um, but it's not. You know, we can't equate heaven with earthly. Um, I read uh, years ago, I don't think I finished it, but uh, a book on heaven, and there were a lot of really good points to it, but it got a little weird for me when it started talking about if you like Starbucks here, you'll enjoy it better there, you know, if there is coffee, it'll be better, you know, so we just got to be careful that we don't equate the resurrected life in equal terms of this life, certainly there will be some things, but the absence of sin will be there as well. So these guys had failed to see that God's power could make the new world in which the conditions of life were were totally, fully different. A commentator, David McKenna, says, by the power of the resurrection, marriage, sex, and family relationships will be transcended by perfect communion with God and other people. That's good, isn't it? By perfect communion. So because of that, their objection to the resurrection had no validity. The difficulty they envisioned didn't apply to the resurrection life. But I mean, you know, haven't we all wondered how marriage and family is going to work there? I, I mean, I have, you know. I, I mean, in, until I studied this, the best I could come up with on my own, because I didn't really study I was just always, not always, but I thought about it a lot, you know. I'm at the age now, I mean, anybody is, I guess, that, you know, your next breath could be the last, so then what happens? You know, who goes first? What happens? I mean, haven't we all thought those things? And I think the bottom line answer for me is that heaven is so perfect because of the absence of sin, why waste my uh, thoughts on what that might be like? I just need to accept the fact that I know it's going to be a whole lot better than it is now. (laughs) Whatever that means, I don't quite know. But... He says here that there will not be marriage, but that, that we'll be like angels. Now, it doesn't say we're going to become angels. Don't get your hopes up that you're going to be zooming around, right? But So what is it like to be like an angel? I, I think it means that we'll have a heavenly existence, that we will be deathless, but there's still a distinction between humans and angels. What is the biggest in your mind distinction right now between humans and angels other than they're invisible and can fly around if that's the way they transport uh, well, other than those kind of things what no procreation. all right no procreation certainly anybody else they only do the Lord's will that'd be a blessing wouldn't it yeah. what else but kind of along that line that we have that they don't have and they do God's will pardon Okay, but still then, why did Christ die? For angels? For us. And and I believe there's a scripture, I can't, somebody help me out. Remember where it is, perhaps in Hebrews, where they're jealous of us, right? 
And because Christ didn't die for them. And from what Brian said, I mean, I just, wow, think of the, and they do his will. You know, they don't sin. Some of them chose that and got booted out. But, um, you know, that's kind of a condemnation on us, isn't it? That Christ died for us so that we don't have to sin. And yet we do. Anyway. So, Jesus here again shows his superiority, um, you know, and this is an indirect uh, correction of the Sadducees' error, which they even denied the existence of angels, but again, here again, they used that. So after he dealt with their ignorance of the power of God, now he goes into their ignorance of the scriptures, and uh, he exposes their error on the very, as I said a minute ago, on the very basis of the scriptures that they used. I mean, you just got to love that. Um, So... The possibility that God could raise the dead to a new life was actually confirmed. Look at verse 26. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So the dead are being raised. Jesus leaves no doubt about that concerning the bodily resurrection of those who had died. And... um, he skillfully draws his quotation from the very passage of Scripture. Yes, sir. Bob, I, I was just going to ask why it would surprise me when Jesus says, they asked him this complex question about procreation and marriage in heaven, and Jesus says, Don't you know the Bible? And so I was wondering what was he referring to, Old Testament wise? Where does it say, talk about that? Talk about the no marriage or. Yeah, it, I think the he makes the comparison that will be like the angels and they don't marry, perhaps. I'm not sure. Anybody got a comment on that? Of where they would have gotten that? I have I mean, a theory, like building on the whole thing. All right. Because the, the, whole, the whole story of the Bible is that re-reconciliation between God and man, that union. You know, we talk about the end, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and how the church and where Jesus is talking about his union with his father and how the father is in him and he's in the church and the church are in them and there's this like union this mm-hmm. like and then you talk about like Ephesians 5 how marriage is I mean he, he uses the uh, principle of the relationship between Christ and the church and how that's this unified <clears throat> thing of, uh, of submission and, and love and sacrifice and I just think you put the whole thing together and basically what he's saying here is they're talking about, you know, a marriage relationship between a man and a and a, a, a woman in eternal things, and he's saying you missed the whole point. I mean, the whole point. It's not about the man. The yeah. It's to show you that God's going to send His Son to die so that you will one day be married with Me. You know, and in, in the Old Testament, He always calls Israel His people, His chosen possession. Mm-hmm. His, I mean, they're they're His, and uh, and I, you know, I'm, I haven't studied it, so I don't know. If there's any terminology in the Old Testament about the the marriage between, I mean, you got Hosea, which shows mm-hmm. God's love and marriage in a sense to Israel, and even through her unfaithfulness, he is going to be with her, you know, and um, and he always talks about him being their God and they being his people, so mm-hmm. I think kind of in general, it's just the entire, it's the whole purpose, you know, he's like, you just missed the entire thing that, that I'm going to be married to you. That this, yeah. the relationship between the man and the woman will be completely 
be overshadowed and superseded by my marriage to you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. That's just. Yeah, that's good. Well, I think the whole backdrop is they're trying to trick him, right? Mm -hmm. They're really not interested in finding out the answer to this sort of convoluted question. And so when he answers them, he says, um, this is the way I've always thought of it. This is why you're mistaken, Sadducees, who don't even believe there's a resurrection anywhere. Right. Yeah, it was absurd. So the whole point is, why are you even getting into the whole marriage thing when you're not even believing in any kind of resurrection? So right. This is why you're mistaken, actually. If God is the God of the living, there is a resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I think he just reveals to them and to everyone watching that they are just silly to even ask the question, and it's the obvious trap, you know, trying to trap him. Right. He just reveals their true character by sort of sideswipe to the real question yeah. asking, but he really is getting to the real question, which is, you're just trying to trick me. You don't yeah. believe in resurrection anyway, so... And, and the fact that he used the very scriptures that they used right. to do it, you know, that's, that's the astounding thing to me. I mean, that, like, look at verse 26, you know, he's, he's quoting exactly the passage in Exodus. I am the God of Abraham right. and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, you know, uh, which shows that covenant relationship. The, the fact that he mentioned I am the God of all three of those guys individually rather than just saying I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, he mentions each one individually, which gets to the point of if they were dead and never to rise again, why? how could he be the God, you know, what would be the point of being the God of a dead person? Mm-hmm. You know, that just, that there's nothing there for that. Uh, said, I was the God of yeah. yeah, I used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how he set this all up, too, because this is the TV of the week he's going to be crucified. So a week later, Mm-hmm. They proved it, right? Right. Yeah. That's good. I mean, even Paul, of course, they didn't have that, but, um, you know, this whole thing is showing that God's living relationship with his people is not terminated by physical death. And um, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Now, how he's going to do that, I don't have a clue, right? I mean, you got people that are, you know, ocean, you know, ships, you know, when people die, they just, they put them over the side and get it. Yeah, and they all. Yeah. Here's an example, right? Even death. I mean, he he's made a covenant promise to Abraham that this would be his land forever, that his his people they're going to enter the land, all those things, and and he even shows Ezekiel, look, man, I can I'll breathe life into dead things and put them back together, and then I'll bring them in. Nothing's going to stop them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's going to be interesting to watch because that all does unfold after, right? I mean, we're all dead first, I guess. Yeah, even those in the rapture, the at the trumpet sound, the, the ones that died first, their bodies go, right? If I understand that rightly, so. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, be double fee. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's right. I want my paycheck. <laughs> so the, the interesting part about this for me is that eternal life is going to be experienced by the whole person, not just your soul, right? Won't that be neat? So, you know, God's living presence and eternal life he gives to us assures us that that relationship culminates in the resurrection. That's when it's really completed. And he, again, he says in verse 27, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You know, they had drawn the wrong conclusion. They'd failed to understand that, that true nature of resurrection. Um, in calling these patriarchs, you know, into covenant relations with himself, he established the relationship with them and that it was, you know, hammering home the point of a covenant relationship that, that it was not terminated with physical death. They were invisible. The dead are, uh, you know, invisible to us right now, but they aren't to God, right? Um, Jesus was really clearly establishing the uh, immortality of the soul. The Bible recognizes the separation of the soul and the body at death, but it, it does not view this as a final condition. You know, we, our final condition is our resurrected bodies, Second uh, Corinthians five one through eight spells that out really well. Um, I'm not going to read that because it's kind of long. Only when we receive our resurrection bodies will we be fully like Jesus. And Paul wrote in Philippians three, but our citizenship is in heaven, and not and, and I'm sorry, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So, you know, one day, all the struggles that we have in this life are going to be gone because we're going to be, we don't belong here. You know, that, that gives me hope. Um, um, Tim Tarchik and I, he's sitting over there, uh, have had this discussion being military guys. Anybody else been in the military here? You know, yeah, Lisa and Bob, you know, that... I don't care where you're stationed in the world. There's this weird concept in the military. You can't wait to get home. You know, you can be on the beach in Hawaii and you can't wait to get home. Why is that? Because regardless of where you are, it's not your home. And that helps me to remember when I start getting too earthly focused. That helps me to to remember this isn't my home. Or when I start to get fed up with this, it helps me to remember this isn't my home. I'm going to be in a better place sometime, my real home. And um, in the military, uh, what you do is when you, they call it being short. You know, you get there and you start knocking down, you know, 365 days short when you hit your last year. And you, most people have a calendar and they tick it off, right? And uh, then... The last day, I think it is, you take your combat boots and you tie the strings together and you go outside wherever you're stationed, you throw them up in the air over the power wire or the phone wire or whatever wire there is hanging there. So I guess when I'm on the way out here, you drive through my neighborhood, I'll have my my hunting boots hanging from the wire. <laughs> Maybe and you'll know Tim's on the way home. So that's it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the, ta- yeah, I don't know. The military, that's. You're done with this place, and that's all you're leaving behind is your dirty old shoes. You know, that'd be uh, interesting here. Huh? So this redemptive program of God extends even to our bodies, right? And God will not fail to bring that to completion. And, and 
you know, I thought of Philippians 1, 6. We always use that, or I do, in counseling with people that are struggling. You know, I'm sure of this, that he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. But I think it applies here as well. You know, to know that that's when it's on the day of Jesus Christ's return is when that culmination of the physical and the soul come back together. And uh, our individuality is going to be preserved for eternity. That means, you know what? Who you are now, the real you, is that's who you're going to be in heaven, right? I mean, we'll all, you know, people say, well, I know you in heaven. You'll know better. Right, because there will be total transparency there. So, preserved for eternity. Um, so, how do you think your marriage relationship here, then in heaven, will be? You know, I, I think it's just going to be not that you're married. None of that's going to matter. But the the knowing the other person is just going to be really like incomprehensible to us right now. These guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they lost nothing. You know, they are at their very best, the best they've ever been right now. Of course, they they got one more step to go. When the trumpet sounds, then that will be completed when they're in their resurrected bodies. But So the point of all this is that we will be more recognizable and more lovable in heaven than we've ever been before. And Jesus ends that with, you know what? You're wrong. You're quite wrong. And only Mark records that. Um, the word wrong there uh, that Jesus used means to ca- cause to go astray, to lead astray, lead aside from the right way, to roam about, to lead away from the truth, to lead into error. So Mark doesn't give us any reply from the Sadducees. Luke notes the fact that he says in Luke twenty thirty nine. then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. How about that? Now... Mark moves um, into his uh, final passage, or I'm sorry, not the final. It seems like I left something out there, but we'll just now I got it. Uh, Mark moves into the question of uh, the most important commandment. You know, all day long they've been, uh, Jesus' teaching is dominated in the temple court, and I wish, uh, Brian, maybe you could help us out here. Of, uh, wh- how long, you know, do you suppose all these discourses were? I, I've been thinking that the whole time because it seems like I've been studying this forever and we're still on the same day and he's still teaching. You know, I mean, did this start at 6 a.m. and go to 6 p.m.? Or how long were these discourses? You know, this group now, Jesus says you're quite wrong and they're gone. And now, boom, another attempt here. And, and uh, so does anybody have any idea on that, have, have studied this? Of what we Right, and some people say that's Wednesday, so it depends on how you chronologically go. That the people that say that's Wednesday would take um, Palm Sunday happened on Monday, not on Sunday. But the Bible doesn't call it Palm Sunday, but the triumphal entry. Say that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so just you know, did they take breaks? Did they, you know? It's just interesting to me that um, if I just try and imagine if I were there, you know, um, would my, would it be riveted attention? You know, all, there, there had to have been lots of people, so there would be distractions. Was it a small group, a large group, a different group with each questioning? You know, those kind of things. But 
Nonetheless, Jesus is still there. And look at verse 28 through 34. This is the next attempt here. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Mark tells us here that one of the scribes came. Let's just see, this time it's an individual, right? It's been kind of groups, small groups, but it's been groups. And now we got one guy. Matthew calls him a lawyer. And um, there's a deliberate approach with this one. And he had apparently been uh, selected by the Pharisees uh, to come. You know, you go by yourself, but here's what we want you to ask. And Mark uh, doesn't give us the motive, but again, Matthew does. In Matthew 22:34, uh, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered in one of them a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, this wasn't the malicious kind of testing that was done by the other guys. This was actually, they wanted to to uh, see his skill in answering the question. And that's kind of a different motive there, if you will. So the guy had been listening to Jesus disputing the Sadducees. He'd witnessed the breathtaking intelligence of Jesus in answering those questions. So he comes forth with one. And um, yeah, I think he's an open-minded scribe. And we see that because he, Jesus commends him at the end, Right. So he asked, uh, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this, again, we talked about how the rabbis always, uh, you know, they had this kind of play that they would answer with a, with a question. Well, this, this is another one of those things here. The commentator uh, Kent Hughes said this, quote, This scribe's question came from the scribal mind game of trying to reduce their religion to a single axiom. For example, when Rabbi Hillel, and I had to look up, well, who's Rabbi Hillel? He was a really uh, highly esteemed uh, rabbi born in 110 B.C., but he was a brilliant Jewish mind at the time. So, for example, when Rabbi Hillel was promised by a Gentile that he would convert if Hillel could give him the whole law while he stood on one foot. Hillel answered with a version of the golden rule. I mean, this is the brilliance of the guy, right? Here's his answer. What you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go then and do it. <laughs> you know, you could say that while I'm on one foot, couldn't you? You know, and and so this is the kind of answer that um, that they that this guy was looking for from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't disappoint him, does he? He, he answers that way. His answer was brilliant. He just says, the most important is, hear, O Israel. Right? And then, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord 
your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Jesus gave the whole thing, boom, just like that, uh, like Rabbi Hillel. He, he gave a very concise answer. The, and the first part of this would have absolutely been known to every Jew, still would be today, right? It's, it's from um, the Shema. I think that's how you pronounce it, Shema, Shema. And it's translated here, O Israel. And it is. Uh, it consists of Deuteronomy six four through nine, um, Deuteron- uh, yeah, Deuteronomy eleven thirteen through twenty one, and Numbers fifteen thirty seven to forty one. This Deuteronomy six four is the opening sentence of every synagogue worship service. Okay, it would be the same as you know. Uh, uh, we don't do the same every. You know what I mean? Though I mean everybody would have known this because this was said at the beginning of everybody's uh, worship. It's repeated by every uh, pious Jew morning and evening, and it was it was warned in their phylacteries that they would tie on their forehead and on their wrist. It was on the uh, the doorpost in the mezuzah. I think is how you say that the little emblem that's on the Jewish doors. And you know, I I realized this. I never knew this, but I realized this um, a year ago that the Catholics actually have something quite similar to this that they do. And I, I didn't know that, but my mother is a, is a staunch Catholic. And uh, years ago, she was uh, really, really, really sick in the hospital. She was in there like for a month. And I didn't know she had this thing with her, but when I went into the ICU room where she was, I saw this little leather thing around her neck, and it had a pouch on the bottom of it. And I, she was delirious and hallucinating and everything. I didn't ask her what it was, but I, I just thought, you know, that it was some form of thing like this, right, that, that the Catholics carry, carry with them. I don't know really what was in there, but I don't know if all Catholics do that. That's the first one I'd ever seen, but... I don't know if that's kind of a carryover from uh, the, the synagogue of the days, but um, everyone knew very well this part of Jesus. You could, you could say this was the creed of Israel, like the Apostles' Creed, if you will, but uh, the creed of Israel. But Mark included this affirmation of monotheism when he says, I mean, only Mark included this, when he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because in the prevailing influence of the day was, was polytheism. Uh, so Mark in, emphasizes that monotheism was important for Israel. And you know what? It is for us today as well, right? I've been reading this uh, book on, uh, oh, it's, I think it's called The Wisdom of Proverbs. I don't know the name. Uh, but it's written by Richard Mayhew in um, in. in in the first few chapters, he's giving a layout of Solomon's life, right? And Solomon, boy, you talk about a guy that God was surely blessing. And he got carried away with women, which then led him to adopt all these other gods, right? And, and he was polytheistic by the end there. And what a warning for us, right? And, and I mean, that can be, a, like I asked some guys yesterday, I said, um, you know, what what denomination do you guys adhere to if you do adhere to one? And one of the guys answered, um, well, is that really even important? And I said, well, I said, 
To a degree it is, but what is more important is what doctrine does that denomination that you identify with, uh, you know, what does the doctrine look like? Because that is hugely important. And that's what happened to Solomon, I think, you know, is he forgot his doctrine and he had forgotten the blessings of God in his life. And matter of fact, if you read a couple of those other Deuteronomy passages that I had there and you look and see... Um, some of the things that God said, he says, if you do this, you'll surely be blessed. And if you don't, you're going to be cursed. You know, would that make it cut and dry for you? You know, you ever think like that? Is it any different today? You know, um, we're not dependent on the rain for our crops. I mean, I got a little garden, so I guess somewhat I am. But even if it doesn't rain, I can turn the water hose on, Right. So, but what would it make your or my obedience to God any uh, different if God said, you know, Tim, if you do this, I'll bless you, and if you don't, I'm going to curse you. And, and the curse meant you don't get food. You know, would that make you obey? You know, I just, you know, then, and, and that's, that's what God laid out for them there. And they didn't heed to it long term, right? And, of course, we know what happened, um, you know, with the destruction of Israel and as time went by. So God was really clear. Jesus was really clear in laying out this idea that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Then he says, uh, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. Um, you know, the obligation stemmed from, from his nature as well as from Israel's distinctive relationship to that one true God. So the constant duty was to love him supremely. And I know we've gone over this in other texts, love him supremely with our intelligence, right? It's more than just this, yeah, I believe in God. Obedience can't be just external. It's got to be internal from the heart, motivated by a faithful love for the one true God. Uh, Said another way, mankind's supreme duty toward God is moral, not what? Ceremonial. And boy, we got to be careful there today, don't we? It's easy to get caught up in a ceremonial thing and not be worshiping God at all. So um, the word love that Jesus uses here translates uh, from the form of the verb agape, which is love of the intelligence, of the will, of purpose, of choice, of sacrifice and obedience, not the love of attraction. So he was talking about the kind of love that connects us to fearing God. In the beginning of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.2, God says that you may fear the Lord your God. So this God that is to be loved in this manner is the only one who's worthy of all our devotion, right? And our affection. I think Paul said it well in Philippians 1.9 when he prayed for the Philippians. He said, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. So Jesus says, love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So does that mean we're four parts? Yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't, does it? Um, there's two views on how many parts of man there are. There's a, a, a trichotomy and a dichotomy. Um, the leadership of our church, uh, we're, we're dichotomous, two parts. 
we believe, you know, you've got the body, but the soul and the spirit are one. And the trichotomist believes you've got the body and the soul and the spirit are separate. All right, but what Jesus is talking about here, the point that he's driving home here is that the heart, you know, that's our personality, but it's the same, the soul, mind, and heart are really all the same thing, right? Um, and this, this wasn't a physiological analysis of the human personality. What he's getting at is every fiber of your being is to be devoted to worshiping God. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Wholly devoted to serving God. The whole package, right? And um, then he gets into, and if you want further study on that, um, my electronic device was malfunctioning this week, but I've got, and I was too lazy to get up and pull the book off the shelf. That's pretty bad, isn't it? But uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology has a breakdown of of that, I'm sure. Uh, So you can look that up in there. And so then Jesus adds a second commandment, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So I'm going to really speed through this. But uh, the love for self, the instinctive desire to promote one's own good is an assumed reality, right? It's so assumed that Paul writes in Ephesians 5.29, talking about a husband loving his wife as he loves himself. He even says, because no one hates themselves, right? Now, hopefully, through the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, you hate what you're doing. But Scripture teaches that, you know, nobody hates themselves. You know, we wouldn't sin if we hated ourselves, right? But listen to this quote from a commentator. This was fabulous. Self-love is being an original principle of our nature and therefore not subject to the caprices of the will. Self-love doesn't change is what he's saying, right? It doesn't suddenly move in one direction or another. He continues, is wisely made the standard of men's love for one another, which would otherwise be ever sinking far below the level of our natural regard for our own welfare. That's good. And in other words, you know, you don't have to worry about not loving yourself. You do. Right. Just plain and simple. So then and so we're supposed to love others that way. So who's our neighbor? It's anybody that's near us. It's anybody that we come into contact with. We could sure get out of that command by not thinking of neighbor, right? What's that guy next door to me on either side, right? No, it's whoever you come into contact with. And that's, that's condemning to me, honestly, because I'm, I'm not there most of the time. Um, sometimes I'm there, but sometimes I'm not, you know. Um, so powerful teaching, right? This, this dual devotion to loving God and loving Man cannot be denied. And if you want to read, I'm not going to read it. I got it here. But uh, the, the best illustration that I've seen of it is the uh, parable of, of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 29 through 37. So again, we see our Lord's teaching is just brilliant. He just encompassed the whole law with a couple statements. It says there's no commandment greater than these. And um, Matthew added uh, on these two commandments, hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, verses 32 through 34, maybe we should stop there and I'll pick those up because next week. Next week, I hope to finish this section, uh, chapter 12, and then Drew Laws is going to teach us for three to four weeks um, on um, eschatology before we get into chapter 13, which Jesus brings out there. 
All right. Thanks for your time.